Father in heaven, we thank you for your word. We thank you, Lord, for the truth that is found in it, for the wisdom that is found in your word. Lord, we ask that in these moments to come that you would push a foolish and frail servant out of your way. That in spite of my inability, in spite of my unworthiness, you, Holy Spirit, would speak through me and to us all together as one body this morning. Lord, so many of us come this morning and we've had the worst week of our lives. Many of us come and it's been the best week of our lives, Lord. Regardless of where we are on that spectrum, we need your word. We need to be encouraged. We need to be uplifted. We need to be challenged. We need to be convicted. We need to be motivated. We need to be reminded of the goodness of your gospel, the good news that there is hope in you and in you alone. Lord, we love you and we long to hear from you this morning. So we ask that you might speak to us as we sit humbly at your feet. Would you please add the richest blessing of your Holy Spirit to the reading, to the teaching, to the proclamation of your Holy Word. We ask all this in the name of the Father, and the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Amen. Amen. If you have your Bible, and I hope that you do this morning, I encourage you to take it and turn with me once again to the book of James chapter 3. James chapter 3. If you don't have a copy of God's Word with you, feel free to borrow one from the back of the pew there in front of you. If you don't own your own copy, feel free to take that copy as your very own, and we will replenish it, and we will be glad to do so. But whether you are accessing the Word in a digital format or in print, I do encourage you to turn or scroll to the book of James. We will be picking back up in chapter 3. I will read verses 13 through verse 6 for us aloud. And when I have completed this reading, I encourage all of us to say, thanks be to God. I will say this is the word of the Lord. I encourage you to respond by saying, thanks be to God. If you are physically able, would you please stand out of reverence for the public reading of God's holy word? We look together now at James chapter 3, beginning in verse 13. Who is wise? And understanding among you. By his good conduct, let him show his works in the meekness of wisdom. But if you have bitter jealousy and selfish ambition in your hearts, do not boast and be false to the truth. This is not the wisdom that comes down from above, but is earthly unspiritual, demonic. For where jealousy and selfish ambition exist, there will be disorder and every vile practice. But the wisdom from above is first pure, then peaceable, gentle, open to reason, full of mercy and good fruits, impartial and sincere. And a harvest of righteousness is sown in peace by those who make peace. What causes quarrels and what causes fights among you? Is it not this, that your passions are at war within you? You desire and do not have, so you murder. You covet and cannot obtain, so you fight and quarrel. You do not have because you do not ask. 
You ask and do not receive because you ask wrongly to spend it on your passions. You adulterous people, do you not know that friendship with the world is enmity with God? Therefore, whoever wishes to be a friend of the world makes himself an enemy of God. Or do you suppose it is to no purpose that the scripture says he yearns jealously over the spirit that he has made to dwell in us, but he gives more grace. Therefore, it says God opposes the proud, but gives grace to the humble. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. You may be seated. As we have been working our way through this wonderful letter written by the half-brother of Jesus, who was a leader in the early church, counted as an apostle himself, he writes this letter and it weaves intricately in and out of various topics. It teases that a topic is coming and then approaches it later in the text. Last week, we looked at the first 12 verses of chapter 3, talking about the deadly poison that is available in our tongues and the difficulty of taming our tongues, of controlling our speech. What's incredible is that as we begin this week, he sets up an incredible dichotomy. These two things are completely opposed to one another. If you have wisdom and understanding from above, then your tongue will be tamed. An untamed tongue lacks wisdom from above. That's the point that he is making by saying right after verse 12, Can a fig tree, my brothers, bear olives, or a grapevine produce figs? Neither can a salt pond yield fresh water. He's talking about the evils of the tongue and how blessing and cursing can come from the same tongue, but ought not to. And so he moves from there to who is wise and understanding among you? Who can grasp these conducts? These concepts, by his good conduct, let him show his works in the meekness of wisdom. The most incredible thing is that meekness, everywhere else in Greek culture, everywhere else that the people are reading this letter, would read this and understand meekness to be a sign of weakness. So when he talks about how wisdom is meek, he gives the character of meekness to the attribute of wisdom, people would have scoffed at that concept. Wisdom of that day was pride, was arrogance. Now, there was also hubris. There was also pride to the point of your fall. But people saw pride as an attribute and a virtue to be attained, to strive for. And today in our culture, it is much the same. I've listened to Rick and Bubba before in one of their bits that gets played on their little best ofs, and it is so accurate how we have shifted our pride and how we still allow it to permeate through our tongues. And I love this bit where they talk about how there used to be a time when you never complimented your children and their athletic ability or prowess or what they've done in school, whether they make good grades, whether they were the valedictorian or whoever they might be. There was a time when even when someone else gave a compliment to your kids, you would play it off, right? Ah, you know, they're not that smart. There's other kids. I mean, that's just in our school. There's plenty of other schools. Kids aren't as, as smart as they are. I'm just saying it, it, they're not that great. And you, you would be humble about and lower the expectation of what's going on with your kids. But it's like a generation of that past, and now we have parents 
who say that their kids are the best that have ever existed. There has never been anyone to play ball quite like our kids play ball. I just remember when Micah was at T-ball, okay? And so we're on the team and one of the co- one of the parents comes up and I'm just helping the coach. I don't know what I'm doing. I'm just out there to be nice and say, come on kids, you're doing a great job and I'm just helping out because nobody else would. And they go up to the coach and they go, coach, looks like you got some real swingers out there. They, they really know how to tote that bat. And I was like, yeah, they're, there are three. Um, I, I hadn't seen any MLB scouts around lately. I, I mean, the ball is not moving. It is stationary on a, on a tee. But, yeah, they're, they're hitting that stationary ball pretty well. I, I mean, yeah, that's, that's good stuff. That's, that's where we are. Something about us, maybe it was because our parents didn't brag on us or, or whatever. We, we get to this place where we have this need, we have this desire that our kids have to be great and our People around us have to recognize that our kids are great. And the thing that Rick and Bubba talk about is Rick sits down at a ball game and somebody goes, you see my kid out there? My kid right there, he got seven scouts looking at him. He got all these folks that they just, they just want to talk to him. He just, listen, he ain't, you ain't never seen nobody throw a ball like my boy throws a ball. He's out there. He's doing great. Like, that, that's great, man. I don't even know your name. Like, like, I've never met you before. And here you are giving me your kid's pedigree and life story about how he's the greatest ball player to ever touch a baseball. And that's how we do, right? With our kids' grades, with our kids' sporting and athletic events, we have to find something within them that we can be proud of, that we can say that they're doing wonderful. And we try selfishly to live the life we hoped we could live through them. And then what happens? Where, where do you find more quarrels? James talks about what causes quarrels and fights among you. People who are deacons together at churches, people who have been friends for decades, can get into the most deep-seated quarrels and fights nowhere else other than the ballpark. I know this is true because there are signs at every field in Covington County that say these are volunteers. The umpires are not professionals, all right? This is not the major leagues. This is just kids' sports, okay? They have to post signs because people have taken it to blows before over whose kid is the best. And it is our pride. It is our conceit. It is our selfish ambition. Even if our children grow up to be not that amazing or fantastic, whatever they're doing, we like to say, man, they're the best at that. They could be flipping burgers at McDonald's. You ain't never seen no robot flip burger like my kid flip burger, all right? I'm telling you what, my kid flips burgers like you ain't never seen. He can operate that microwave to reheat them patties like nobody else. He can fry them chicken fingers at Zaxby's like you ain't never tasted no fried chicken finger like my kids can make fried chicken fingers at Zaxby's, okay? I don't, I don't know what it is within us that that's one of the places that our pride comes out most and we fight and fuss with one another. It's hard to find people to fill the nursery because parents believe that their children need such extra special care that sometimes people are unwilling to volunteer, not because they don't like the kids, not because they have a problem with the children. The children are still wonderful love children that will cry and spit up and do all that great stuff that all kids have always done, but it's always difficult to deal with the parents of the kids. It's tough to volunteer for Wednesday night because you know that it's not just about those kids being crazy. It's about their parents coming and getting you. You know what? My child is a little advanced for the curriculum that you are teaching here on Wednesday night. And I would just like to hear what your plan is to advance the curriculum because my child needs more. um, I don't know. What should I say? 
My child needs to be challenged and they will rise to that challenge. Uh, okay, that's great. We'll, we'll find some harder verses for them to memorize. Thank you so much for your input. It's our pride. It's our selfish ambition trying to push our children or our agenda, whatever our agenda may be. But that's what causes the fights. That's a lack of wisdom. That's a lack of having control of our tongues. How many churches do you know have divided because there was a group of people, maybe just one or two people, filled with their own pride, filled with their own selfish ambition, filled with their own conceit, for their own needs, for their own desires. And it divides the church in half. And then another church is formed. And then somebody in that church doesn't like how something's happening in that church. And so it divides and forms another church. How many teams do you see ripped apart in professional sports or whatever team may be by that one guy who's out there to rack up his stats? And he's not a team player. This is what wisdom is. Wisdom is the antithesis of bitter jealousy. It is the opposite of selfish ambition. For, verse 16, for where jealousy and selfish ambition exist, there will be disorder and every vile practice. Folks, I, I want us to gather that when you find disorder and chaos in the church in the corporate world, in classrooms, in schools, in Zaxby's, in McDonald's, in wherever. This is the heart of it. There's jealousy and there's selfish ambition. There's somebody that's ripping that company, that's ripping that team, that's ripping that classroom to shreds with their selfishness and with their pride. Backtrack with me one verse. Look at how he describes it in verse 15. Now, I want you to understand. I want us to gather. He's not talking about homosexuality. He's not talking about prostitution. He's not talking about being a drunkard or a sluggard or a liar. He is talking about pride. He's talking about jealousy and selfish ambition. And these are the words that he uses. This is not the wisdom that comes down from above. It is earthly. And then notice there are superlatives stacking on top of one another. It gets increasingly worse with every word he says. Starts off with earthly. Then he continues to unspiritual. And unspiritual is not strong enough, so he moves to demonic. That word demonic, he is putting selfish ambition and jealousy on par with demonic activity. And do you know why? It's because that's what caused angels to fall. What was Lucifer's primary sin but thinking that he could supplant the Lord in the Lord's glory and beauty? Lucifer was the most beautiful and wonderful and powerful of all the angels. And he was so filled with his own pride, his own selfish ambition, his own jealousy of the power and the rule that God had. He tried to usurp the Lord and brought other angels with him. And they all, in their selfish ambition, were cast down and have become what we call today demons. Selfish ambition, conceit, and pride is the activity of demons. And so when we're filled with those attributes, when we're filled with those mentalities, we're on par with how the demons live and work among us in the spiritual realms. I want us to turn to another passage. Look with me in Philippians. 
This is how opposed the gospel is to pride, to selfish ambition, to conceit. Now, this is Paul writing. So James writes that in James chapter 3. Here we are in Philippians chapter 2, beginning in verse 3. There's going to be an instruction in two verses. And then there's going to be an example of why we are to follow that instruction. Okay, so bear with me. Verse 3, do nothing. Do nothing from selfish ambition. That's the same word James uses. Do nothing from selfish ambition. Do nothing from conceit. But in humility, count others more significant than yourselves. How do we battle selfishness? How do we battle conceitedness? How do we battle our pride? We count others as more significant than ourselves. If you want to be humble, it's not about thinking less of yourself, but thinking of yourself less. That's what humility is, to think of others more. You don't lower your opinion. Somebody with low self-esteem is not necessarily humble. Somebody who is others-focused, you think of others and count them as more significant, their desires as more significant than your own. Let each of you look not only to his own interests, but also to the interests of others. So there's the two verses that give us the command. Then verse 5. We have that mind among ourselves because that belongs to us in Christ Jesus. And here's the why behind it. Here's the why behind what James says. Here's the why behind what Paul says. Jesus Christ, who, though he was in the form of God, did not count equality with God as a thing to be grasped. The exact opposite of what happened with Lucifer. The exact opposite of what happened with Adam and Eve. The sin of taking the apple and biting the fruit, whatever fruit it was, it may not have been an apple. Taking that fruit and biting and eating from that tree was not just about simple disobedience. It was about the pride and the selfishness of, I want to have the same knowledge and power that God has. And so in their conceit, in their selfish ambition, they took and disobeyed and rebelled against God so that they might know like God knew, so that they might understand like God understood, so that equality with God would be within their grasp. It uses those words in that language because that's what Eve does. She grasps the fruit and pulls it from the tree. But Jesus, who was perfect in every way, did not grasp at the power of the Father. He counted himself as co-equal and said, I don't have to usurp the Father. The Father sent Jesus the Son, and Jesus willingly volunteered at the same time. He emptied himself by taking the form of a servant, being born in the likeness of men, and being found in human form. He humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. Therefore, God has highly exalted him and bestowed on him the name that is above every name. (coughs) Excuse me. So that at the name of Jesus, every knee should bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth. And every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. This ties back to our discussion on faith. He plants the seed in the discussion 
on faith. And it comes to fruition here. Here's the example we see in Jesus. He emptied himself. He took on the form of a servant. And then God exalted him for his humility. But how many of us end up buying into the American dream? I've got to pull myself up by my bootstraps. I've got to put myself forward for the promotion. I've got to have the drive and the ambition to get ahead of everyone else in the rat race. Because if I don't, no one will ever recognize me. No one will ever see me. Good will never come to me if I'm passive and sit back. I must be ambitious. We count ambition as a virtue in our society, do we not? Ambition and selfish ambition exemplify a lack of faith in our lives. It proves that we don't really have faith in God. Because if we really trust God, and it's more than just words we say, it's more than just showing up on a Sunday, it is who we are, it is what we believe to our core, then we trust God to exalt us and humble ourselves. We are willing to take the job, the form of a servant, because we know that God sees, that God knows. My boss may not see it. The church may not know it. People may not be aware of it. But I'm going to do it because God will see. God will know. And I will work heartily as unto the Lord. Not to advance myself, but to allow the goodness of God to come to me as I wait in humility. It's not just about saying the right words. It's about controlling our tongue and our heart. To be willing to be meek, to be willing to be humble, and trust that the Lord sees that. The Lord knows that, and the Lord is fighting for us. He is the one who fights our battles. And if you think that you can make it farther in this life, if I think that I can make it farther to a higher position of honor on my own than God could ever place me in, in His power and authority and grace, then I am sorely mistaken. And if I try to force my way into that place of honor and recognition and higher pay and better benefits and whatever it may be, when I force my way there and depart from what the Lord has planned for me, I'm missing out. On what God would have. God would not have the division. God would not have the disorder. That is what we're being told. To be people of peace. If we want to be people of wisdom, we are to be people of peace. I've told you so many times, and I say it again this morning, James's letter is almost an identical mirror image of Jesus' Sermon on the Mount. And all of this talk in James 3 and James 4 about the quarrels, about you desire and you don't have, you, you covet and you do not obtain. When James is talking about this wisdom from above, first it is pure, then it is peaceable and gentle. It is open to reason. It is full of mercy and good fruits. It is impartial and sincere. And a harvest of righteousness is sown in peace by those who make peace. A harvest of righteousness is sown in peace by those who are peacemakers. Turn with me to Matthew chapter 5. Matthew chapter 5 verse 9. 
right here at the beginning of the Sermon on the Mount, the Beatitudes. Jesus says, blessed are the peacemakers, for they shall be called sons of God. Now, this is a fine line. This is very nuanced. You've got peace on one end. You've got pride and selfish ambition on the other. You've got humility on one end. You've got pride, conceit, evil desires on the other hand. But right here in the middle, we have peacekeepers. The Bible is very strong in what it says. Blessed are the peacemakers, not the peacekeepers. You see, keeping peace means giving whatever you can, whatever answer is palatable to make sure that the peace is not disturbed. That's not what's blessed. What's blessed is making peace, which is much, much harder. Making peace involves reconciling. Making peace involves humbling ourselves and going to those who we either have offended or have offended us in order to take enmity and strife and turn someone who was an enemy into someone who is a friend and a brother or a sister. And I say that because that is biblical. When this word peace, it's shalom in Hebrew, it's arene in Greek. That word peace means complete. It is not a word that just means the absence of hostility. That's not what the Bible means when it says peace. There's plenty of people that I have no hostility with, but we are not at peace with one another. So the best example of this is the Cold War. After World War II, you have major superpowers in the, in the whole global scheme of geopolitics. You have the USSR and you have the USA. These two were at odds. There was tension that you could cut with a knife, and at times there were imminent thoughts that the world was going to be ended by nuclear warheads blowing up everywhere, right? The lack of a war taking place did not mean that our country was at peace with the Soviet Union. There was still tension. There was still hostility. The Cold War is a great example of peace keepers. I'll get more guns because you have more guns. And then we will cancel each other out with our big guns. Our mutually assured destruction will ensure that there is peace. But that's not real peace. And that's what you and I try to do on a personal level. And what it result, what it actually feeds from, the results end up with a cold war between you and whoever you have hostility with. Because in our pride, we're not willing to humble ourselves and deal with the issue. In our pride, we'd rather just go along to get along because it's hard to make peace. It is hard to make peace. It was really hard for Jesus to make peace with us. That's why we continued on into chapter 4. There's a great division there from James 3 into James 4. But when he says, do we not realize that friendship with the world is enmity with God, Jesus came to make peace with those who were his enemies. And it was messy and it was hard. Turn with me to Colossians. Colossians chapter 1. The, the, the part that we're going to zero in on is, is on verse 20, but this is, 
This is so beautiful of who Jesus is. I'm just going to read the whole thing, starting at verse 15 through verse 20. Colossians, speaking of Jesus, says, He, being Jesus, is the image of the invisible God. He is the firstborn of all creation. For by Him all things were created, in heaven and on earth, both the visible and the invisible, whether that's thrones or dominions or rulers or authorities, all things were created through Him and for Him. And He is before all things, and in Him all things hold together. And he is the head of the body, the church. He is the beginning, the firstborn from the dead, that in everything he might be preeminent. For in him all the fullness of God was pleased to dwell and through him to reconcile himself to all things, whether on earth or in heaven, making peace by the blood of his cross. James talks about wisdom. James talks about a harvest of righteousness that is sown in peace by those who make peace. Jesus made peace. And the peace that Jesus had to make was between you and I who were enemies and rebels against God in our own pride, in our own selfish ambition. We sought to put ourselves as the God and the King and the throne of our own heart and our own life. And the only way to make peace with rebels and treason-filled people like us was for Jesus to shed His own blood. Sometimes that's the depths that we must dive to in order to make peace. And if we're being honest with ourselves, we're just not willing to do that. We've got too much pride. We're too selfish. We're not willing to humble ourselves. We're not willing to put forth the effort. And maybe if I do that, I've got to admit that I was wrong. How many of you that are married have experienced keeping the peace in your marriage? You get mad at your spouse. You're mad at each other for, I don't know, a week, two weeks. And everybody in the household knows something ain't right between mommy and daddy, okay? Your parents come over, your cousins come over, your friends come over. Everybody understands full and well there is no peace in that relationship. But you and your spouse, oh, we're fine. We're, we're, fine. we're keeping the peace because neither one of us is willing to humble ourselves, right? Neither one of us, neither the husband nor the wife is willing to admit, maybe I was wrong. And making peace will be hard. We'll have to talk about something that is hard to work through. We don't want to make peace with our coworker. We don't want to make peace with our boss. But that's what sets Christians apart. Because that's what Jesus did for us. And it cost him his own life. It cost him leaving the glories of heaven to step down into our muck and our mess and to live the life we couldn't live and to die the death that we deserved. He made peace for us and reconciled us to God the Father by shedding his own blood. And we are to be peacemakers like he is a peacemaker. And blessed are the peacemakers. And so many times we just think we'll keep the peace. We'll, we're, avoiding, we're avoiding a whole war, a full-scale assault, but the tension is still there. The hostility is still there. Folks, this morning, 
Don't walk out of this place being comfortable with the status quo of, well, I don't say anything to them and they don't say anything to me, so that's fine. If that's you, if that's me, that's our pride. That is demonic. Let us be the people who are willing to go forward and make peace and humble ourselves and trust and have faith that God will recognize the sacrifices that we make. The person we're making peace with may not get it. They may not understand. They may still throw barbs at you. They may still try and harm you and insult you. But if we are to be peacemakers, we humble ourselves. We count the interest of others as more important than our own. We count them as human beings as more significant than ourselves. And we make peace. Because when we make peace, we show what Jesus did for us. When we make peace, we live out our faith. Because Jesus was, is, and forever will be the ultimate peacemaker. And if you and I are so conceited as to sit here or stand here this morning and think that there's no way that Jesus did more than what I'm going to have to do to make peace with that person, there's no way that Jesus did more than what I'm going to have to do to make peace with that team, with that company, with that teacher, with that principal, with that boss, with that supervisor, with that coworker, with that person in church or that person who I sit over here because they sit over there or I sit over here because they sit over there. Jesus didn't have to do all that to make things right. Yeah, he did. He had to die and be raised from the dead. He said, I want y'all, my children, to be peacemakers. He said, Nathan, I want you to be a peacemaker. And this is what it looks like sometimes to be a peacemaker. But if we set our selfish ambition, our pride, and our conceit to the side, God sees it. And God knows. And it may not even be in this life, but there will come a time when the Lord God Almighty will exalt us for humbling ourselves and making peace like He made peace with us. This morning, are you a peacemaker? Are you a peacekeeper? Or maybe you're the one who stirs up all the drama. You're filled with your selfishness, your pride, your ambition, and you set off drama grenades everywhere you go. You're the one at the ballpark that everybody dreads when they see you walking up. You're the one at work that everybody goes, I can't believe that they went behind my back to do such and such, and you don't even care. If that's you, maybe you've never experienced the peace that Jesus offers. If you find yourself incapable of making peace and incapable of humbling yourself, maybe you've never placed your faith in the one who humbled himself above all else, who stepped down out of glory and shed his own blood that there might be peace between God the Father and us. If that's you this morning, I beg you, trust in Jesus. Experience the peace that comes with knowing Christ. And maybe this morning you've been walking with Jesus for years. But something about what's going on in your life right now, you've forgotten that it's not about a rat race. It's about humility. It's about trusting in Him to exalt us at the right time. 
It's about counting others as more significant than ourselves. And maybe you've just forgotten. Wherever you are today, I pray that you will hear that Jesus Christ is a peacemaker. And he wants for you to have peace. And he wants for us to make peace together. Let's pray. Father in heaven, we thank you that you are the ultimate peacemaker. Thank you that by the blood of your cross, by the blood that you shed, Lord, we have the opportunity to have real peace. We have the opportunity to experience friendship with you, God. Be pulled away from the world and be pulled towards you. Help us, Father, to not be a church filled with quarrels and fights and backbiting and insults and pride and selfish ambition. Help us not to be the people that demand to have it our way. Help us, Lord, to be the people that make peace. That the peace that is made and that the peace that will exist by Your grace and by Your Holy Spirit in this church will be the kind of peace that makes the rest of the world go, I want what they have. Lord, help us to be bold enough, to be filled with faith enough to follow You in that way. And Lord, if anyone here this morning has never experienced peace with You, they've never trusted in the life, the death, the resurrection of You, our Lord Jesus Christ, I pray You move on their heart that they might beg of You to forgive them. They might repent of the way they are living. They might turn to You and accept Your forgiveness and confess that You are Lord. We ask, Father, that you would move among us, that you would help us to respond in obedience. We ask all this in the name of the Father, and the Son, and the Holy Spirit.